founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, Greg, thanks for being here, my man. Thanks so much for having me, Drew. So we're going to start with the question that we always ask, which is the origin story of your company. How in the world did this thing get started? Well, it, it wasn't like it was drawn up to be, I can tell you that. Uh, you know, I came from a family who uh, was not entrepreneurial. We were not in real estate. Uh, I was raised to work really hard and get good grades so I could get a good job. And that's what I really tried hard to do in the midst of having a lot of fun in college. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I, that was my career path. I was really focused on uh, working for a big company. I was lucky enough to land an internship, which turned into a full-time position with a Fortune 500 company. And I remember how proud I was, you know, coming out of college. And sure, you know, they, uh, it was a nice salary. They even gave me a, a signing bonus. I was like, wow, they, they give you a signing bonus? And I remember- I'm like an athlete. <laughs> yeah, man. It was, it was, it was it, honestly, I, now looking back, there was a lot of my own self-image that was wrapped up in this- uh, journey that I thought I was going to be taking through corporate America and kind of working my way up the corporate ladder. I remember how proud my parents were. And, um, and you know, and then I got to that job and worked there for about a year, year and a half and found it not to be what I was expecting. I found it to be a place that was not a team centric environment. It was one where uh, the leaders at the top actually try to suppress talent at the bottom. And, um, you know, there were a couple of moments that I just really wondered um, the, you know, I wondered how this whole thing was built. Like, I wondered if I was at the very lowest levels and I was facing this sort of opposition, which I felt was beyond kind of like how I was performing my job, like how many people would I have to step over to do that, to get to these higher levels of success within this company? And it really left me in a very demoralized, uh, depressed state as far as my career path, what I thought I was going to be doing, uh, what I was really excited and passionate about at a certain time turned not to be that way. What industry was that in? If you don't mind me asking, I was a financial analyst. Okay. Yeah. That, that was gonna uh, be my guess. I don't know why, but that was gonna be my guess. Well, yeah, they told me financial analyst, then they put me in accounting, which I'm not much of an accountant. Oh. So that certainly didn't help as well. Um, so how well, old were you at that point when you started thinking about this isn't for me? You know, that was my first year of working there. I was probably day 10 of working there. Yeah. <laughs> so I graduated in 2005. You know, I was 23 years old at that point. And um, yeah, you know, I was commiserating with a, a number of friends and colleagues that were in the same position. We we're like, is this, is this what life's like after college? Like when you get a real job, like, are we supposed to just accept this? Um, and, um, you know, a friend of mine turned me on to a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Which, Drew, have you read that book? Yes, Robert Kiyosaki, man. man Game changer. I, I hope every opportunity I get to be on a podcast like yours, I try to talk about this book because this book changed my life. Wow. It's that powerful. Uh, and if you have, have known me or knew me back then, you know, I'm, I'm more of a planner. I'm more conservative. Uh, this is why this, this big shock of it not working out for me was, was so disastrous for, for me. Uh, it's because I thought I had it planned out. And it turned out not to be, but this book literally changed my life. I picked it up one night. My friend told me to read it. I became so passionate about what it espouses that uh, I read it through the entire night. 
I remember it being two o'clock in the morning. I put the book down. I went, looked myself in the mirror and I said, I'm quitting my job and I'm starting my own real estate investment company. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it was that powerful. Wow. In one night of reading it, it changed from, I'm not entrepreneurial. I'm going to play this traditional game to, I am going to do it this way. And I'm going to, I even know what I'm going to create. Yeah, it, it was that powerful. Now, actually doing it takes a lot of help. It took a lot of help to do sure. it. Um, you know, I, you know, I think um, you're just, all of us are just a, uh, a result of the people that we surround ourselves with, right? And so one of the, the people that I've always surrounded myself with since high school is one of my best friends, uh, turned out to be my business partner as well. And so he knew that I was sort of struggling in this journey as well. He's a very different type of individual though. He's my business yeah. partner today. He's one of three business partners I have. And uh, he is your serial entrepreneur. He is the guy who is always going to be starting companies uh, and having success and failing and just doesn't, it just rolls off his back. So he saw me and he said, you know what? This is my time to pounce on him. He said, I know he's going to struggle to actually make the leap. So what he did is actually moved into my condo in Jacksonville and he pretty much just slept on the floor for like two months. And it's like his plan the whole time was like, listen, I know I'm going to start a business with you. I know we're going to do this real estate thing. I know it's tough for you to make the leap. So I want you to see me every single day when you leave to go to that job that you're still working on. <laughs> when you see me checking out properties or researching or finding things, I want you to see me sitting on the couch, my board shorts, doing what I love, because it's going to motivate you to actually quit that job and, and do what you want to do. Uh, and so that was his incredible marketing campaign for me. I, I freaking love that. Some, kudos to him. Um, recognizing a free agent when he sees one and wanting to get that talent. Yeah. Um, why real estate? Was it because of some of the principles and Rich Dad Poor Dad? I know he talks a lot about real estate cash flow and that kind of thing. Or did you have something else that turned you on to real estate outside of that? You know, I think it, the principles that Robert Kiyosaki talks about in that book absolutely struck a chord with me. But for me, it was something a little bit more personal. You know, growing up, I just remember um, that, you know, both of my parents, incredible parents, but that there were things that they couldn't be at because they had to work. And, and I just started through this book, I started to understand the power of passive income. And I started to understand how accessible it was for everyday people. And I said, wow, this could be this time ownership that I can start to acquire at a very young age. And I became very passionate about real estate because of what it would allow me to do and the decisions that I could make probably 10 years down the road, if I just subscribe to these principles that are not that risky, right? Like that are not that far out of the box. You're not trying to hit home runs here. You can just do it. And if you do it early, uh, the, this path has proven very successful for a lot of wealthy people. And so I, I became so passionate about it because I looked at every rental property that I would start to acquire as an hour of my time that I was going to dictate in, you call it five years or 10 years or 20 years. That's really how I started to think about it. And it struck this chord with me personally because I, you know, I was 23 at the time or 24 at the time. And I said, you know, I don't have a wife and kids yet, but I know at some point that's what my goal is. I want to be there in 10 years. I want to be able to control my time. I want to be at every baseball game or every girls lacrosse game or every time they get on the honor roll and they have a special celebration in school. I want to be there. And if I want to do that, real, real estate and rental properties can be that vehicle for me. But I got to do it now. And I also looked at what the risk was of me taking that leap and falling flat on my face. And I said, you know, corporate America is always going to be there. If I'm not right, if I totally screw it up, listen, I'm sure I'm, I can get hired again and go back to this miserable existence. <laughs> That is, that's exactly the way I looked at it. I took a leap later than you, right around 30 though. Yeah. And we just thought, you know, it's not going away. This and those opportunities. Right. 
they're just gonna be there, you know? So Did you have a, a tough existence like me that was pushing oh yeah. you that way? Yeah, absolutely. I, the way I described it was like, um, everyone's like, man, it's so brave, you know, so brave to take that leap. I'm like, not when you're standing on a cliff and the wall is moving. That was the best way I could describe it. It was like Indiana Jones, you know, when he's standing there and he's like, I know there's supposed to be a bridge and I can't see it, yep. but then the wall starts pushing you. Yep. I was like, internally, there was a wall that was pushing me. There was like, I can't, like, I, I literally can't keep doing this. I feel so bored. I feel so, and then it turns into miserable, you know, and I'm, I'm not being a good husband, a father, any of that kind of stuff, because I am just hating my existence. And yep. so is it brave? Kind of, but it's more, it was like a survival move. Like this is the only thing I know to do. So let's go do it and, and hope that we, there is a bridge there that appears. Right. I love the way you're describing it, man. And I think it really takes people who are in that, in that spot who, who do take that leap to be able to speak about it so eloquently, because on the surface, it looks really risky when you think about the money that you may be giving up or whatever type of benefits. But when you reframe what risk is, like the risk of doing something that you do not enjoy for the next 20, 30 years of your life, like what's riskier than that, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. You know? Well, and uh, it's also like, that. it's also not as safe as you think it is. Right. Exactly. Like, one, having somebody else get to control how much money you make and when or whatever is, is a risk already that like someone else will see the potential in you and give you the opportunity you deserve and or acquiesce to your raise you're able to convince them of second they can fire you at any moment absolutely i, I know so many people that had a safe job that lost that job mm -hmm. company went through a change or you know the, we hit a recession or whatever and boom they're, they're gone and i'm like and now you have no hunting skills exactly. you were just you were a gatherer and the the famine came and we need to go out and kill some food for ourselves and you don't know how to do it you know yep. and so i found it easier to take that leap before anybody forced me Yep. Uh, Cause I also thought I was probably gonna get fired at some point if I stay in this headspace. Yeah. You know, like if I keep, well, having I don't this... know, you know, <laughs> I would I hope a lot of people were in that headspace that are still working at the company I was working at. Yeah. They could probably fake it better than I am. I'm just true. I'm just not good at doing crap. I don't care about. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm with you. I'm not good at it. So, uh, easier said than done is how we all feel about it. Like we know here's the principle we're leaning into. Here's the future we're creating. And then it's difficult. We know it's going to be difficult, but then inevitably it's like, wow, that was really difficult. What were the difficult aspects for you early on that you had to overcome? Well, you know, starting obviously is difficult, but um, with the help of one of my best friends, we were able to do that. And the interesting thing was the time that we started was 2006. And in real estate in 2006, if you had a pulse, you generally were doing okay. You were yeah. generally making some money in 2006. And uh, you probably felt pretty good about your ability to be a real estate professional, whether that was a realtor or an investor or starting a real estate investment company. Or in construction, anything around in, the, in that industry. Didn't matter. And now yeah. we, know, we know that that was not real. That was irrational exuberance. That was loose lending that contributed to that. Um, but for a 23-year-old, 24-year-old kid and two 23-year-old, 24-year-old kids starting a real estate investment company who were actively buying and selling properties uh, and investing, we, we thought we were pretty good, which is probably the worst thing that can happen right out of, <laughs> right out of the gates. Um, so we, we tried anything and everything. We were blessed with some great mentors early on. Though. I mean, that's one of the things I absolutely believe in is just 
investing in your education and finding those people who are at a level of success in whatever area you want to be in uh, that, is, that is far beyond where you are right now uh, and just leaning in and, and following those folks. And, and Were they already in your world or did you have to go get them? We had to go get them. You know, I, I feel very lucky and blessed. I feel like we were in the right place at the right time. Um, you know, these, the, the gentlemen that became our mentors actually were on the show, Flip This House. They have built a really successful real estate investment company. It's called Fortune Builders and they're, they're incredible. Fan Merrill and Paul Asian are two of my best uh, buddies in real estate mentors. They treat me like their little brother, which is, which is always fun. Heck yeah. Um, and we happened to meet at the right time because this was way before that show and way before they built this really successful real estate education company. And what they were searching for is some guinea pigs to try out their education on. And so randomly, I met them at a conference and they were just acting as more of a testimonial for the speaker. And I saw it was, it was actually three guys there, Dan, Paul and Conrad, who were the owners. And, uh, you know, again, I'm not much of a, an extrovert. I'm not usually the guy at a conference who goes up and just talks and speaks and all that good stuff. But something motivated me that day to go up and strike up a conversation with, uh, with Than. And I said, Hey man, I, I want to do exactly what you're doing. They were young guys. They were probably 25, 28 years old at that time. And they had built a company buying and selling hundreds of homes. And it built a team of people like them, like-minded individuals who are having fun. And I said, I want to do what you do. Are you, are you, will you teach me? And Than said, yeah, absolutely. Um, now Than had never actually taught anybody before I was the first person to actually pay for that education, which I found out soon after. Um, but that education is one of the very best decisions I've made in my entire life is to go and spend those thousands and thousands of dollars ever before I, even before I had done my own, um, you know, done much of my own real estate or, or had much success. And, uh, and that, that relationship has now spanned well over a decade. We're still wow. uh, strong business partners today. That's amazing, man. Uh, yeah. And it's also a gift for him because most of us don't know how to teach what we know until we're forced into it. Right. And then you're like, well, I guess I got to figure out how to translate this. I haven't thought about it. I just do it, you know? Absolutely. Um, and not probably, it sounds like that became its own revenue stream for him, oh, education. Yeah. Um, so that's a gift from you to him and from him to you. That's a great exchange. I, it was just a, it was a beautiful moment in time. And out of my character, probably in Dan's character, he's always, he's entrepreneurial. He's always coming up with something new. Um, but yeah, we, each, we kind of each filled each other's bucket there because, yeah. you know, there's nothing better than now I get to be in the, in the position of, of this, seeing other people be successful because of your thoughts, actions, what you teach, what you coach, right? Um, and that, that's really important to him. So how well. did, let's fast forward, you got that early success, you're finding, you know, traction in a great economy for real estate. And then, you know, 08, 09, 10 happens. What was that like for you? It's really tough. It's really tough. So um, learning what, what we learn from our mentors and from being connected here or starting to be connected in Jacksonville real estate, um, but being young we, and trying to survive, we, we were trying all different types of real estate. We tried buying and flipping high-end homes, buying and flipping low-end homes, wholesaling, uh, lease options, seller financing, some commercial properties. I mean, you name it, we tried it. We've, we've really, one of the best things about my business partner and I and, and our company is that we're really not afraid of failure. That was never something that held us back. So we tried everything and we had varying degrees of success. Um, one of the best things that we tried was buying a portfolio of rental properties though. 
And uh, so we did this in 2006, 2007, we bought about 40 rental properties. And again, you know, I was raised, both of my business partner, my business partner and I, uh, we were all raised uh, by single moms um, and didn't come from real estate, didn't come from money and whatnot. So we had bought these 40 rental properties and people were kind of asking us about this. How, how are you guys doing this? And so we became masters of smart debt and understanding how to do this. Um, and we bought these rental properties. They produced cash flow for us. Um, and, you know, we managed the properties and um, we just, you know, we just didn't really think too much about them. The rest of our time was spent on all these other activities. Well, as you mentioned, 2007, 8, 9, 10, right? The market crashed, right? Over 35% down in Jacksonville and across the country at that time. And so what happened at that point is it, it was a really tough time for us. All these other activities, right? It's like that 80, 20 rule, like 80% of our time was spent on all of these other activities. And those activities were not just making 20% of revenue. Those were losing a lot of revenue, right? It was the worst 80, 20 you could ever think of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, at that point we were faced with some, de some decisions. One of the decisions was where do we spend our time? What is actually working in our business? And it was like this epiphany that we had. We looked at all of our books and, and we would meet every single month and we talk about, you know, the, the books, right? Are we making money or whatnot? We wouldn't even look at the rental properties when we were reviewing our financials. Like those, those were just like the retirement account. We're like we didn't think about those. But one day we're like, you know what? We're losing a hell of a lot of money over here. Let's look at these rental properties. What's going on? How are we doing? Cash flows were strong. Property management was working. People were still occupying the homes. And even though on paper, we had lost a lot of value for us, it never mattered in those rental properties because we didn't plan to sell at that moment. Yep, they were yep. always our retirement account. That was my time ownership 10, 20 years in the future. So even if the values were 35% higher or more, I still wasn't going to sell. My quality of life did not take one dip. In fact, it was improving as my cash flows were coming in and I was benefiting from things like the residents paying my loan down and things like that. And it was just this moment where it's like, wow, we're not spending any time over here, but this is actually working amidst the chaos. In the worst real estate market that we'll probably ever see, this is working. We're spending zero time. And at the same time, people are asking us about, us, about it. They're curious. How are you guys doing this? How did you master this smart debt? And so for us, it was that, that moment where we said, wow, the signals are pretty clear here that something's working. Let's invest in this. And we said, well, how can we package this experience that we have in buying 40 rental properties as 23-year-old kids, uh, renovating those properties, getting the financing down, and then doing the property management so it can be successful? How can we make this easy for other investors? And that became our calling card. Um, and that's that is our hedgehog now. That's the source of our business. This is what JWB Real Estate Capital does. We make investing in rental properties easy for everyday people and handle all of that for, for those folks. So that, that really takes us from, geez, call it 2010 to really where we are today. And we've just been on this wonderful journey. Uh, we now have the opportunity to serve over 1,300 clients. They come wow. to us from 49 states and 13 countries, and they all invest with us here in Jacksonville. Uh, we handle every part of the transaction for them, including the property management in-house and get to manage over 4,400 rental properties now, um, have a staff of 85 plus uh, teammates here in, uh, in beautiful Jacksonville and, and manage over 
uh, $750 million in real estate assets. Um, and it all started with that decision that we made to focus on this asset class that became our hedgehog. And, and it was really this wonderful understanding of like what was successful for us, but also kind of how we're built. Like, I love the idea of people putting their trust in me, giving me some of their money with the expectation that I'm going to return a lot more back to them over a period of time. You know, that's just how we, that's how we think we're, we don't make money off of education or things like that. And I think that's really, really important, right? But education is a different model. And I think you need to be built differently. We are of that model. Like, listen, we're really confident. We're going to be able to take that pile of money that means a lot to you and make sure that you get a lot more back. And, um, but it took a long, arduous journey to figure that one out. Heck yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think about moments in my journey, and even today, working with my business, working with other people's businesses, how many times there's things that aren't working that for some reason we just don't see. We just don't see it. It's like we're too close to everything where it's business as usual. And like, I remember two different examples that made me stop and think about things in my life. One, I don't even remember who it was. I think he was an actor or something but he he had this thing where he called soul points yeah and he started thinking in terms of how many soul points is whatever i'm committing to going to cost me and then how many soul points do i get back when i engage in that activity well, and he just used it as a lens for a period of his life and it was like man i'm putting a whole lot of my soul into that and i'm not getting very much back that's a bad investment and so he'd right. say no to that and then he'd look at sometimes it was even financially better to have done that thing but then he'd look at like this indie project and he was like, God, I'm, you know, I'm only putting this much into it, but I'm getting so much fun, so much life back to it. And he just used that as a framework. And I was like, wow, it's really interesting. And then uh, Henry Cloud is the guy that wrote the book Boundaries, if you've ever heard of it, Dr. Henry Cloud. Yeah. And I heard him at a conference once because he, he worked with a lot of CEOs. And he said the most consistent issue they had was not recognizing a necessary ending. And that was his phrase. It just always stuck with me. He said a necessary ending. There was something that used to work that isn't working anymore and you haven't seen it or you're unwilling to let go of it. Mm -hmm. And it's taking resources that the other things need. Wow. And so really he said often it was an old assumption or maybe it was the thing that you first started doing that you loved, but it's out of date now and it's not really doing what it used to. Yeah. And he was like, if you think about like a tree, it's getting the other branches are getting less resources that they need and could like really blow up because that's still taking resources. And that's exactly what you talked about. Like yep. we're still putting time, energy, meetings, money into this thing. When the rental market that we have, if we gave it more resources is proving that it would do well with that. Right. Exactly. And so I think for everyone listening, like just taking a few different looks at things and saying like, is this giving me the sole investment that I set out to get when I did this? Or is this giving me the return on the time, energy, money that the business where it makes sense to keep giving that product line or that service, any of my effort, or should I take it and all and put it over here? Right. Yep. I love that's, it, man. That's so it's good hard to make that decision too, because what you're basically saying is that you were wrong. Yeah. You know, and there's those, there's those sunk costs, whether that's emotional or real, that's hard to turn away from. And the, I always think there's like so many shiny objects as an entrepreneur, right? Oh, there's this revenue stream here or here or here. I've heard this person over here. It's really easy over here. I could just do that. Yes. You know, cutting through that noise and, and uh, man, I love that. And that's Dude, I'm so glad you brought that up. That was actually the biggest danger to me early on in my entrepreneurial journey is when things were hard, I was attracted to all the glittery objects mm -hmm. and 
It's like, wow, man, that sounds like an easy business. And that's, you know, this, that, and the other. And I sat down with my, what I would consider my most successful friend in a lot of ways and a lot of different criteria. Yeah. And I was like, he's gonna be so proud of me. I took this giant risk and I'm about to tell him how I'm going to diversify my risk by doing like five different things at once. Yeah. So I'm like, can I buy you lunch? Like, yeah. I'm like, all right, you know, I set out to do this, but listen, as I was doing that, this opportunity came, this opportunity came, this opportunity came. I think I'm going to do all of it. And therefore I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket and right. it'll be easier. And I'm like waiting for him to be like, dude, that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and he goes, can I tell you my honest opinion? I was like, I bought you lunch. I drove an hour. Like, yeah, give me your honest opinion. Yeah. He said, I think you're about to fail at the thing you set out to do. Wow. And I was like, whoa, why? And he's like, cause you didn't set out to do any of those things. And they're all going to be distractions when the thing you set out to do needs all of your attention right now. Yeah. And he said, you need to wake up thinking about it. You need to go bed, go to bed thinking about that one thing you set out to do. Yep. And he's like, if you ever get to a place where that thing is leveraged and autopilot, sure. Well, let's talk about that opportunity and that opportunity. But he's like, you got at least two years, buddy, where this is all you're thinking about. And I was like, oh, I was not expecting that. You know, oh. he told me the riskier option was, you know, diversifying. And the safer option was like, figure this shit out. Go to bed thinking about it. Wake up thinking about it until it works. What a valuable dinner or lunch that you bought for that guy. Absolutely. And that is sage advice, man. That is awesome. I've lived that. I've lived that pain point and I've lived the success when you make the right decision there too. I think it really, really is a, a common, it's, it's a common thing that entrepreneurs do. We think that we're limiting risk by doing it that way, but we're creating more risk exactly. by all these shiny objects. It's war on, it's, it's a war on multiple front strategy. It sounds awesome. Like what mm. if we took over this country, this country, this country, this country, right? Yeah. You're taking a finite amount of soldiers and you're under resourcing them at every front. Right. And that was the part that started to click to me it was like, yeah, like all of these ventures are going to require a lot of time, money, energy, and I'm spreading them all out. That means I'm probably going to fail at all of them. You know, it's like we're not giving enough credit for how hard it really is to succeed exactly. in business at one thing. I mean, what's the number? 90, 95% of small businesses fail within the first two years, right? Like it's hard to be successful for one thing. One thing. Exactly. Um, and that's what he was telling me. It was like, they're all convincing you that all of those don't have that difficulty, but it does. Yeah. Or, or everyone would be doing it, right. you know? And so I was like, oh man, but here's why I'm excited about our conversation today, because one of them was around kind of real estate investing and that kind of thing. And it's, we're getting to a better place now in business and that kind of thing that I can't help but to think, man, at some point I do want to spend my money in some way on things like this that make a whole lot of sense, right. but it's overwhelming for the common person, yeah. you know? I'm not that person. I've never been in that industry. How do I know I'm not going to sink my money into something that is a money pit or whatever? Absolutely. And so tell me about how it works when people come to invest through you, through your company. How does, how do you guys serve them? I know you mentioned briefly, but uh, tell me, take us a little bit. If someone's listening and they're like, I'd like to try some investing in something like that. What do they do? Yeah, I'll definitely walk you through there. But before we go there, let's talk about like what it feels like to actually make this decision as somebody who's not in real estate. Most people who are not in real estate that get into real estate think that the very first thing they need to decide on is the property, hmm. right? That's why they think, okay, well, I'm going to, now I'm at a point where I can start to invest in real estate. I heard that I should probably look at other rental properties in my neighborhood because I'm close to that neighborhood. And so I'm going to find one in my neighborhood, right? Because it's less risky that yeah. way, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> I can I can literally go down the street and check on it if I need to. Yeah, exactly. Which is only which is assuming that you're the best person to do that and assuming <laughs> that you want to spend your time doing that. So I don't know how you define risk, but you know, you could look at risk both ways there. But they they focus on the property first. Um, and then what they do is once they find that property in their neighborhood or close to that, most people, then they they may like start to pay attention to their market a little bit more. And they start to fall in love with the market because they wanted to support their decision of the property that they were investing in, make themselves feel good most of the time, right? So they're looking for the best parts of their market, right? Okay, well, that's why I invested in X market. Um, and then lastly, very far down the road, they start, uh, and they may never actually do due diligence, but at some point, they may start to look at the team. And the team supporting it is more of a commodity to them, especially if you're thinking about like property management, People will go so far down the line, spend so much time agonizing over the property, and then they'll just do a Google search and they'll find the property manager and they'll call them up, ask a few questions and sign the property management agreement, right? Successful investors in real estate or really in anything else you do, switch that, right? They focus on the team first, right? Mm. Especially if this is going to be an investment that is going to be a long-term investment, which is something I believe is really critical in rental properties, right? If you buy and hold real estate over a full market cycle, it's hard to lose. I mean, that's just real. It's hard to lose if you buy and hold real estate over a full market cycle, which is known to be between 10 to 20 years. So if you're going to be buying and holding something for 10 to 20 years, you go to the team first. Yeah. Make sure you have the absolute best team to support you. And, and that's a lot more than property management. It's acquisitions, it's construction, it's financing, it's title, it's insurance, it's, of course, uh, property management. Um, so that's really where successful rental property investors and real estate investors and investors in general need to start is the team. Once Love they find that. the team, then they need to do their due diligence on the market. And when it comes to the market, you need to be objective about this. Just because you live right next door to that property or live in that market doesn't mean it's the best market for successful rental property investing. You really need to be looking for markets that have low prices, high rents, and have above average appreciation over a full market cycle. Hmm. Low prices and high rents are important because if you have low prices and high rents, you create that positive cash flow for what yourself. Creates, what conditions would create something to be a low price but a high rent? Well, let's take Jacksonville, for example, okay. right? Cost of living in Jacksonville is very low. We've been a market that has really been under the radar for many, many years. Um, we get overshadowed by the other bigger markets in Florida. People think of Miami, Orlando, Tampa. Even though population has been growing here, uh, we, don't, we just don't get the, the notoriety. It's not as well-known or it hasn't been as well-known as the last few years have kind of changed that. Um, so our home values in Jacksonville are lower than the median home price across the country. Median home sales price across the country is a little over $400,000 now. Wow. In Jacksonville, it's about $325,000, right? So you can look up what your median home sales price is across the country uh, in wherever market you're in, compare that to the median home sales price across the entire country. And if you're below that, that's a good sign that the costs of this investment on a monthly basis are going to be low enough that the income can be high enough that you can mitigate your risk by creating positive cash flow. You go out to San Francisco, or you go to New York, or you go to some of these markets that are well above the median 
home sales price, yeah, there's no way that you're going to create no margin there. cash flow every single month. Yep. And all Man. this data is available. Do you guys help with that as well? Like when someone invests, are you helping them hunt for those properties or is that more on their end and you're helping the logistics of it? So we're, we are solely focused on Jacksonville. So we're, ah, uh, got it. Yeah, we're, we are, we believe that going a mile deep in one market is better for our clients and for our investors than spreading out and trying to create this, trying to do right back to your story, right? Going yeah. to, try to set up five markets or 10 markets at one time. Um, we think that that actually creates a lot of risk for investors. Um, so we're focused on Jacksonville. So, but we, we talk a lot about what we encourage folks to do is through, um, you know, their due diligence, whether that's online, listening to our show or whatever it may be, do your due diligence on us as a provider, uh, do your due diligence on a lot of providers come to us. Right. And, and what we do is if, you know, Drew, if you were interested, I'll kind of use you as an example here. If yeah. you were interested, you'd, you'd reach out to us in one way, shape or form, say that you're interested in, in letting, uh, letting us know, um, we'd go through a series of conversations. We bring clients on very, very slowly. Um, we're going to walk through, we're going to do a client demo with you. We're going to teach you what it's really like to be uh, an owner of rental properties for a full market cycle, the highs, the lows. We're going to be open about the fact that there's going to be maintenance costs and vacancy costs and all of that good stuff. We're going to show you how your returns on investment will perform. We're going to show you the strategies as to why we're going to be able to consistently perform where other people in real estate tend not to be able to do that. Um, and we're going to build out a buying plan for you. So we're going to look at what your goals and your resources are and understand based on your goals, how many properties do you actually need to purchase in order for those goals to become realized? And what's the time frame? Yeah. And what are some strategies that we can do to financially engineer this thing so that with that same given pile of money, we may be able to get you to that goal uh, a little bit quicker there. Heck we do yeah. all of that even before looking at properties, um, which is very different. You know, most real estate investors, again, they went to that property right down the street. They called up the real estate agent. They immediately start, you know, looking at that property and making offers. We think that's just a backwards way to do it. Oh man. I love that. That client centric strat, like you're getting the actual goals aligned with what you all are doing and the buy-in. Cause I imagine if it's a rush, we took the money, we got you into something you weren't prepared for, even if it's working through the natural ups and downs. Now you gotta, now you gotta work on trust. Now you gotta talk them off the ledge. Exactly. All that kind of stuff, right? You're avoiding exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, the, the vast majority of our sales come from repeat clients and referrals. And the only way that that's going to happen, especially in a market today, which we just experienced 20% home price appreciation last yeah. year to this year. So it's a lot more expensive for our clients to buy properties today than it was a year, two years, three years ago. The only reason why clients continue to buy and our sales are up and the percentage of sales from uh, repeat sales and referrals is up it's because of trust. It's that trust. If we were just to make this transactional from the very beginning, we would not be bringing on clients who thought and believed the same things that we believe. And it's much more worth it for us to have invest two, three hours of conversations on the front end and maybe come to a decision that that person maybe has the money to do it, but it's still not going to be a good fit later on and politely, you know, explain that this isn't, this isn't going to work than to have that person buy their first property, they're not going to be happy because our goals aren't aligned. And then of course there won't be repeat sales and referrals may even be the opposite it might be negative right. responses that might come from it. Um, what would be an example, almost not, doesn't have to be specific, but an example of where someone's goals wouldn't be aligned with 
your goals? Is it more philosophical? They're wanting short term. You're thinking long term. Like what? Where would where would a mismatch be? You know the the goals that I think are pretty easy to define as uh, return on investment goals and cash flow goals and things like those are pretty easy for us to determine, right? We're going to understand that within a few minutes on on the conversation. The ones we spend more time really getting to the heart of are more about being more active in the investment or passive in the investment. Uh, because an active investor, this is this is not a model that is built for an active investor. If you are an investor who has the time, energy, experience to go out there and pound the pavement and find your own real estate, and then you want to manage your own renovation and you want to do your own property management, I think that's amazing. And there's an opportunity for you to earn a great return. There's more risk involved as well. But right. either way, there are a lot of people that are successful doing that. That is not what this is catered to. This is catered to that investor who probably has money in the stock market uh, and is probably just not happy with how it's been performing, probably a little fearful of what's going to be happening in the stock market over the next year as we're starting to see with P-E ratio still being uh, outsized. Um, and they're saying, hey, listen, maybe they're 60 years old and they're saying, you know what, I can't afford for the market to uh, go into a correction, right? And they want to come into a more, more uh, consistent asset class. So those folks are really who we're targeting. That makes sense. You know, active investors can, can still do this as long as they say, well, this is going to be my passive portfolio in Jacksonville. I might be an active investor in Sheboygan or wherever, right? <laughs> you know, I'm going to be active there, but Jacksonville is now my passive portfolio. That works really, really well, but we spend a lot of time. And listen, are you going to want to have final approval on your residents who we put in your homes for you and sign long-term leases? Are you going to want to get the final approval? Is that important to you? If it is, I'm sorry, that's not how we operate. You know, that's, listen, we, we rent out thousands of homes every single year, right? We know how to do background checks. Like, right. you got to be able to trust us to be able to do that, along with hundreds of other decisions that are going to be made on your behalf so that we can just show up and deliver those returns to you. So that's, that's more of the, you know, dialogue of finding out who might be a good fit and who might not be. I love it. So before I change topics, I want to promote your podcast. If they're listening to this and they're like, man, I want to hear more, I'm obviously it'd be on your podcast. So what's the name of it? Where can they find it? Yeah. Thanks so much, man. So we do uh, our show. We do it every Tuesday and Thursday. And you can listen to it in podcast form. It's called the Not Your Average Investor Show. So you can find that wherever podcasts are for, for you. Um, and if you want to join the live audience, as I mentioned, we do it live every Tuesday and Thursday. We have this great group of community members. We have 50, 60, 70 folks show up every single time. Wow. And half the value is the content, but half the value is the community. We have real friendships that are made. Um, and so if anybody would like to join that, you can register for free. Uh, you can go to nyais.com for notyouraverageinvestorshow.com and just sign up, join the live audience, and we, we'd be really looking forward to welcoming you. That is brilliant. One, great name, just from podcaster to podcaster. Well <laughs> Thanks, done. man. And then two, I, I haven't heard that. that. That is a really neat way of building community is having them join you live for it. Man, I tell you what, we kind of stumbled onto it in the beginning, and I owe a lot of credit to our marketing team here. It it was brought to me as an idea. And I'm like, that sounds like it's, that's a lot of work. It's really risky. You know, like I don't want to put something on and have like one person show up. <laughs> right. Know, right. Were, these were the thoughts that I was thinking two years ago before we started. Uh, but man, I tell you, it is probably the best thing that I've ever done from a marketing perspective, from a, a community building perspective, especially because that was right before COVID. Wow. You know? 
And that gave us the platform to be in front of people when people needed us the most in terms of uh, managing their money. Um, so yeah, man, I couldn't recommend it higher. I think it is a game changer as far as building that community, man. Well, now I've got a conversation topic for my team this week. That's, that's fun. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, man. If you need any help, let me know. I'll, I'll point you. In the I right will. Direction. Oh, hell yeah. I'll, t- I'll reach out to you. Um, so just to change topics quickly before we get to lightning round questions, the other challenge I imagine for you, your world isn't just the investment side anymore. Understanding, you know, investing in these, these rental properties and whatever, you've now got a team of 80 something people that you are managing. So there's like the outward part of the business, right? That you got to be good at, but then there's like, well, crap, I've had to hire people, fire people, you know, raise up leaders, all that kind of stuff. What has been, what has that journey been like for you? And what are maybe just a few lessons you've had to learn along the way uh, to do that well? You know, I, I think it is the greatest opportunity for us to grow our business is to invest in our people. You know, real estate business in general is a team sport. Most people, especially in real estate, think of it as kind of like a, a hobby or something that I need to be good at individually. And I think that attracts a lot of people to real estate. But we thought very differently about it in the beginning. We were inspired by our mentors who were doing this. And we're at a level far beyond where we, beyond where we were in the beginning. And so we just, we just leaned into people. And, you know, we're really open with our strategies as far as how we buy our assets or how we manage our assets or how we build our new construction homes or how we do everything. And we do that because I'm not scared about people that are going to, quote unquote, steal our ideas. I want more people to steal our ideas. I want more people to steal our strategy. I think it makes it better. I think everything is, is better. Um, but the one thing people can never replicate is our team. And when we make an investment in our team, uh, that is something that is the biggest opportunity, the biggest, call it the biggest opportunity for growth and also the most secure thing, right? Like nobody can replicate when you have 85 people that believe what you believe and are moving in the same direction. So it has been something that's been at the core of what we do for a long time. You know, when we started our company, we, uh, in the beginning, we, uh, we bought lunch for our team. This was going all the way back to 2007, 8, 9, 10. When the market was crashing all around us, we still bought lunch for our team. We probably had 20 folks at that time. Uh, we bought lunch every single day. We've done it almost the entire time we've been in business. Wow. And one of the things we believe is that strong relationships and bonds and friendships are born over when you eat meals together. And so uh, we continue to do that today. We have an in-house chef. Uh, we believe in spending time with each other and accomplishing a higher mission than just buying renting, selling, doing property management for rental properties. It's very fulfilling, but it is not the end all be all. We feel like we have a higher, a higher mission and that is to change people's lives. And we do that by leading with service. We lead with service for our team. We lead with service for our clients, for our residents and our community. And so um, we actually just yesterday, actually, we just took our entire team on a walking tour of downtown Jacksonville, just to kind of share all the amazing things that are happening downtown and our presence downtown as we're making more investments there. Um, but that's one example of a community building or a volunteer event that we do every single month. Uh, we actually shut down the entire office, take everybody out. Um, a lot of times, as I mentioned, we're going and we're volunteering for Habitat for Humanity sure, or um, some of the youth foundations that are here locally. And so that, um, geez, I forgot about what we do every single, geez, I can't believe I forgot about this, but this is the, the pinnacle of what we do every single year as far as community building is we actually raise money through our charity called JWB Cares, 
Uh, we've raised over $450,000 with JWB Cares. And every year we build a new construction home and we gift that home to a local member of our military who needs a helping hand with affordable housing. So they get a brand Whoa. new construction home. Uh, and we've done this now. We've built four homes and delivered those four homes to folks in the community. So everybody here is super talented, but I think the, the key for us is helping people believe in what we believe and being a part of something bigger than themselves and being a part of something bigger than just buying and selling and renting and doing property management. And when you surround yourself with people like that, who, who are inclined to think that way, it makes all the difference for our, our clients, for our residents, for our team. I mean, I've been doing this for 16 years. Sometimes people can get, you know, burn out after doing something for 16 years. I'm motivated every day when I walk in the office because of the people that we work with. And they're motivated because it's a lot more than just a job. Yeah. It is about being part of something bigger than themselves. Man, well done. That is that is really, really inspiring. I think is the right word to hear, especially because you, you, and this is where my question is, you took it from the 20 to the 80 and that's a hard leap. You know, when it's yeah. the 20 and you're all there at the beginning and you know, we're scraping together and everybody knows each other's name to the 80 where it's much bigger organization. You can lose that buy into the mission or lose that feel of camaraderie or whatever. Um, I don't know if you point to anything specifically or just generically, but like, how do you think you've been able to do that? Well, um, it's been something that we had to pay attention to each and every day. It's, it's not something that you just build and then it just works it on its own. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a living, breathing thing that you need to make investments. Honestly, the last two years through a wrench in our plans for our culture that we didn't know how to solve, right? Our culture is built on spending time together and being in close <laughs> proximity to each other. Yeah. Right. Like, that, that was a real challenge for us. And so every October, my business partners and I sit down for business planning. And last year, we said, that's when things were starting to become a little bit more open. And we said, we've got to not rest on our laurels for what we had done for the previous 15 years in terms of culture building. We need to realize that this is a brand new culture. A lot of the people who are on our team now don't know what life was like at JWB when you could hang out all of the time. And you could have team building events and you could walk around without masks on. Um, and so, you know, we just leaned into this and said, listen, we're starting from, even though we've won best places to work for many, many years in the past, we're assuming we are no better than anybody else. Like, how do we make investments to make sure that people see why we are doing what we're doing, um, that we are living and operating by our core values, that it's a living, breathing thing. And so, you know, we just, we just operate with that. It's, it's an everyday investment. We, we love that investment. We love making that investment. It's a fun investment to make when you've got the right people, but it is just not something that you get to a certain level and then pass off. It, you got to live it. You got to breathe it. Right. Absolutely. I mean, anything living and breathing like people, like culture, all that kind of stuff is like my yard. I mean, the moment I stop taking care of it, that was by the way, the pandemic, the pandemic, I was like, I'm trying to just save money everywhere. So I was like, yeah. I canceled the yard service. That one in retrospect, if I were thinking better, I felt bad about because it's like, well, dude, that yard service probably needed that money. Uh, I just wasn't thinking. I was in like cost saving mode, you know? Yeah, man. But the the amount of like damage my yard went through from not being kept up. I mean, obviously I cut it, but right. like things just growing and all that kind of shit. It took yeah. me the whole next year just to kill it all off. Right. And now this is the year that I'm hoping it grows back like the way it was. 
Right. And I'm like, man, that just is such a good lesson of when you think things are fine and you're like, yeah, I'll just take my eye off of it. If yeah. it's important, if it's living, it's breathing, it needs constant attention uh, or it starts to just kind of go off the rails. It is, you know, but if, if you are, if you're built this way, like if you, if you genuinely care about culture, like then it's not going to seem like work, right? Like it's not going to seem like a, a lot, like it's not going to seem like a lot of work that, um, you know, but not everybody's built that way. I think the most important thing is to understand how you're built, right? If, if you want to lean into culture, you have to be genuine about it because there's no yeah. way that 80, the worst thing you can do is talk a big game and then not back it up by how you live and how you act because 85 people would definitely see that. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you know, that, that would not be good. So, um, it's like when you, you know, see someone send out an, uh, an employee survey, you know, like an engagement survey yeah. and they get, they get feedback and they don't do anything with it. And it makes it yeah. worse. It makes it worse than if they had never sent out the feedback form in the first place. Cause now yeah. they're like, well, we voiced our opinions and you didn't do anything. So now we really feel underheard and mm -hmm. not resourced, you know, but they're mm -hmm. like, well, I thought that's what I should do. I should send this out and I should gather feedback if you plan on doing something with it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. Um, you can't say, let everybody tell you they want more time or they want, you know, more pay and you don't do shit. Now they're like, well, now they're actively ignoring me. Yeah. Right? Exactly. You just made the problem worse. <laughs> That's so good. All right. Well, I know you've got a, a, a hard cutoff and, and so do I. So let me get you to the lightning round questions before we run out of time. Love it. Five questions for you that we've asked every founder on the podcast. We will start with question number one. If you could ingrain just one message into your entire organization, what would that message be? One of our core values, the one I probably love the most is under promise and over deliver. I think the best businesses out there know how they can perform. It's a better opportunity and value for their clients and what they can get else out, out there. They, they know how they can perform, but they tell their team, they structure their, their investments or whatever it is to perform a little bit better. And that mm. the first time that you tell people that you're going to produce at a certain level and you come in a little bit better, more than they were expecting, most of the time you made a client for life because they trust you, Right. So under promise and over deliver is one message that is ingrained here. Uh, I hope it lives on forever. I think it's some of the best business advice I've ever heard. Heck yeah. Well, that, that I'll, I'll let that count for also the first part of question number two, which is the single best advice you've ever gotten. There you go. So we'll go to how about the worst? What's the worst advice you've gotten or heard be given about growing your business? You know, I, I don't know if I've ever heard this specifically said, but I think so many young entrepreneurs care so much about how much money they make in the first year or the mm. second year, right? Like I think, I almost think about this like a cash flowing rental property, right? In rental properties, cash flow is important so that you can cover your expenses, but you're not going to like retire for, uh, you know, when you own five or 10 rental properties that are making a hundred bucks a month or 200 bucks a month, or call it 300 bucks a month, right? Like, yeah. you know, the goal here is to be in the game so that the other profit centers can grow with you over time, over those 10 or 20 years in rental properties. That's how the wealthy actually do it. So in business, I think about it the same way. In the beginning, you are learning so much, right? You are making connections. You are stubbing your toe. You're failing. You're recovering. And if you can do that and you can, if you can break even, right, that is a massive win, right? So many people are so focused on short-term success in business. Once you realize that if you, if you can make it five years, if you can make it 10 years and you've treated people well in your sphere, 
those opportunities come to you and you, it's like a hockey stick. That's where you start to earn significantly more. So I, I would tell people not to care so much about how much money you're making. Don't let that get you down in the first year or two. Um, You know, it's about being in the game and doing things well and doing things right with the right people. And that's where you get the big payoff in business. God, that is so good. Uh, I heard David Meltzer, I think, I think it's his name. Talk about your first, your goal in business for the first few years is to keep the doors open. Yeah, exactly. He was like, if you can just stay open one more day, one more day, usually the rest of the competition falls off or the right amount of right work you've been doing eventually pays off. Absolutely. And that just helped me in the first couple of years go, dude, we're, we're at least accomplishing that. Like we're keeping the doors open. We're keeping the game. We're still in the game. It's right. Amazing. It's, yeah. that's, that's the goal, man. That's the goal. Same with even podcasting. Like it takes you so much longer than you would think to build any kind of audience that you initially would think everyone got right away. Exactly. It's like, no, most people quit within the first 10 or 20 episodes. Yep. Instead of like with both of us, we're in the hundreds. Right. And I don't have any plan to stop because I love it. Yep. I'm like, I love it. I just want to keep going. You get 10 people to believe what you believe and build some sort of community with those folks. Like that could be your whole business. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't have to be big numbers, man. It, It really doesn't, man. I think you're right. Awesome. All right. Number three. What currently causes you the most stress or worry as the leader of your organization? Been thinking a lot about um, the way to attract talent going forward. I think coming out of COVID, there's it's a it's a brand new ball game as far as attracting talent. There's this concept of the third place that we really believe in here at JWB. Right, um, you've got home, you've got work. And you've got a third place, which yep. you go to because it's comfortable. You can work. It's not exactly your home. For many people, that's been Starbucks. Well, I think what's what's going now in this post-COVID economy is that in order to get people to want to come to work now, it has to be more attractive for them to come to work. This third place has to become um, ingrained in your workplace now. And I think that is a very big shift for many companies. Um, for us included, we're making significant investments in our office place, the mm. amenities that we have in our office place. And it's because for us to uh, attract top level talent over the next 10, 20 years plus, we think that we're going to have to have an office setting. And, and we've already got the culture that we believe is really, really strong, but we're going to have to improve our office setting to make sure that people look at this and say, well, I would rather be here in the office than working remote. And that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. So we're excited about that opportunity, but I think most companies are going to have to face that sometime soon. Yeah, man. So smart. I love that. All right. Question number four, what is the BHAG for this company? What's the big exciting goal or mission that you're on? So, you know, I shared with us donating uh, one home per year. We've done that for four times now. Really cool. We actually get to meet the recipient next Thursday in in our giveaway, uh, which we're super excited about, but our, our plan is to go bigger and better when it comes to our mission at JWB Cares. And the, the easiest way to define that is the number of homes that we're able to donate every single year. And so our mission is to do two in the coming years, three, four, five. We want it to go bigger and better. We think we have something really special and it just aligns. It aligns with you know, our mission, affordable housing, aligns with our market, which we all live here in Jacksonville here. We're committed to this market. Um, it aligns with our business activities. And, um, it's something that it's the single best day of the year when we get to, to do that. So 
Yeah. So our big, hairy, audacious goal is to continue to grow the number of homes that we build and donate to our our military veterans here in Jacksonville. And hopefully next time you invite me back on the podcast, you know, the number's up to two, three, five and, and maybe yeah. even more per year. Heck yeah, man. It reminds me of, of hearing Tony Robbins talk about the meals he gives away for Thanksgiving and how it started off an exciting, but modest number, but his intention to do that forever. It has had a multiplying effect. Yeah. It was like, man, I'm giving millions of meals away a year. Whereas at first it was like 15 meals. That was all I could afford, you know? Yep. Uh, and I just imagine what that thing could be uh, with that spirit of generosity. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, man. Awesome. All right. Last question, a little break from the business questions. I mean, it can apply to business if you want, but feel free to go wherever. If you could hop into a DeLorean, you get to go back to your past and you get to tell yourself just one thing. When would you go back and what would you say to that younger version of yourself? Uh, it's funny. I actually went, <laughs> my friends and I, my business partners and I actually went to Gainesville this past week. Uh, we uh, won the award called the Gator 100, which is for the fastest growing Gator led companies in the world. And wow. we're all Florida Gators. Um, so my business partners and I, we, we've won this award a few times now. And so we kind of made it an annual tradition to go back to Gainesville. And so as we're walking around Gainesville, it's completely changed in the 20 years since we all went to school there. And it's got mixed use and it's got retail stores on the bottom with apartments on top. And it's got all of this building. We went to the old places that we lived in, in college and half of them are torn down now and become these multi-unit apartment complexes and whatnot. And man, I think if I, <laughs> if I could go back, I would just, I mean, I feel like I was a few years to where I learned this journey as far as real estate investing a little bit later after my experience in corporate America, if I could have learned this, if I would have just read those books, if I would have just invested in my education, if I would have listened to my dad a little bit more uh, in high school uh, and I could have bought real estate in Gainesville, uh, it, it, I, you know, I would be, it would be a lot of fun. So uh, that's probably what I'd, I I'd love it. go back. If, the you know, investor's mind, he'd go back yeah. and oh invest in these properties earlier goodness. You know, it's, it's the thing, man, you buy real estate, you hold on for a full market cycle. It's hard to lose. And, uh, Gainesville is a cool example of that as well. Wow. Well, I went to Clemson. So the same thing would be true for me. I mean, it's right. a tiny little bumpkin town in Clemson, South Carolina, the success of our football program. I go back now it is it's changed the entire town. And you're like, dang, man, like one of my roommates bought a house there and was renting it out. And I was like, we should have been buying so many, <laughs> found a way, like found a way to buy some houses, but you, we couldn't predict that. We were mediocre and thought we'd always be mediocre, you know? I know. Didn't know Dabo was going to come into town and change Dabo's everything. done great things for real estate in Clemson. Woo, I'm telling <laughs> you, man, it's the same in the same way. Like it's really wild, whether it should or shouldn't, the amount of money that comes in when, when one of the teams becomes really successful. Yep. Pretty yep. wild. I, we've done it without any good coaches lately. So what do you know? That's true. <laughs> <laughs> but you had the nineties, man. The nineties were we incredible. Uh, all right, my friend, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I have learned a ton today and I know our audience has as well. So I appreciate you making time and sharing with us. Definitely buddy. Really appreciate it, man. Founders. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.